Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we recap the business week uh, that was in provincial politics and federal politics with former NDP finance critic Peggy Nash. How can we unmask foreign agents in a culturally sensitive way? Phil Gursky, former CSIS agent, is going to talk to us about that. And Ontario's Integrity Commissioner has cleared Premier Doug Ford of wrongdoing after developers described as personal friends of the Premier attended a stag and doe party for his daughter's wedding. How is this appropriate and not a conflict of interest? A lot of people are asking. We'll address it on the show today. The Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Doug Ford and uh, Ontario Health Minister Sylvia Jones met with uh, a couple of different federal ministers yesterday, Jean-Yves Duclos and Dominic LeBlanc. Uh, and it was about this health care deal that they're trying to hash out right now. And uh, the Premier says, well, it went pretty well so far. It was a very productive meeting. Uh, there's still a little bit of work to do. And again, uh, I always stress this. We have to consult with all the, the premiers right across the, the country. But it was a very positive, positive meeting. Well, so let's talk about how positive it is and what it just might lead to. And to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Peggy Nash, former NDP finance critic and author of the book Women Winning Office, an activist guide to getting elected. Uh, Peggy, good to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Happy to be here. Good morning to you, Bill. Good. Listen, before we talk about the, the nuts and bolts of the meeting yesterday and how that works, uh, we haven't talked for a couple of weeks. Give me your thoughts on, on what is on the table right now, the, the, the presentation by the Prime Minister to the Premiers. This has been an ongoing debate. Uh, God, I guess this is about 1964-65 when they started to try to attack uh, this whole problem about public health and, and a national health care plan. Uh, it's not the way it should be. It's not the way it used to be. Uh, a lot of people have got great ideas and not so great ideas as to how we should fix this. Uh, what's your assessment of what the Prime Minister laid out there for the Premiers? Well, uh, I think there was a lot of spin. And at the end of the day, not as much money as the Premiers certainly wanted uh, or even were expecting. Uh, the, the prime minister was, and his government ministers were sending signals that, uh, this was going to be a massive, massive amount of money in, invested in healthcare. Uh, we saw the number of 196 billion coming out. Um, but that's total health spending over a 10 year period. Uh, what the prime minister actually laid out it, with his announcement of 48 billion over 10 years is in fact what the liberals had campaigned on in the last election. And so it's far, far less than the, uh, so 4.6 billion a year, if you take it over 10 years. And the premiers were asking for 28 billion. They said that's what's needed to really get our healthcare system back on track. So you can see there's a a massive shortfall between what's on offer and what the premiers are saying they need. So but with that in mind, Peggy, with that, that, on the money that being offered, a huge no difference. Why, why aren't the premiers outraged? Because, I mean, they all expressed, quote-unquote, disappointment in the deal. Most of them did anyway. Uh, but they still seem to think, look, it, I'll, I'll take it, but it's not what I wanted. I, usually when you've got such a wide gap there uh, in, in money, such as you've just described, uh, they're outraged. They walk away from the table, say this is a waste of time. Uh, but I guess are they that desperate right now that any money is better than no money? I really think that's it. There is such tremendous public pressure on all levels of government to get to, to do something to fix our healthcare system. 
people have literally died because of a breakdown in our healthcare system. So there's tremendous pressure on on the provinces and on on the prime minister, and uh, the fact that some money is being offered. I don't think any premier, even Danielle Smith, who's going into a spring election campaigning against the federal government, even Danielle Smith, I think, will be hard pressed to turn her back on money that could do something for healthcare. It's it's a classic case of a bird in the hand, the way I see. Mm-hmm. So, and I got that sense, and, and even yesterday, the premier's uh, you know pronouncements after his meeting with the two federal ministers, the the federal government seems to be looking at this. Okay, we want to get everybody on board, sign on, and and you know we can kind of put the toolkit away now because this is going to be the framework. But but to a person, all of the premiers seem to be saying, well, okay, so we'll sign on, but this is only step one. Uh, they, they want a lot more discussion and certainly a lot more money. Hmm. Yeah, I think the the prime minister would like to put this to bed. He's got this amount budgeted in their spring budget. It's it's going to be a tough budget because of the softening of the economy. And they want to show both that they're fiscally prudent and that they are defending our healthcare system. Uh, I think everyone who has commented on the money being offered knows this is not going to fix our healthcare system. Um, there, you know, it's going to help, uh, but there's much more fundamental change needed. And, um, by that, I'm, I'm not saying privatization because I'm, I'm opposed to greater private services on offer, but I think there, there is, is, there's much more that could be done, whether it is with, uh, technological advances uh, and I think there may be some money, some of this money on offer for that. It, it seems ludicrous that you can send money around the world with a click of a button, and yet you, your doctor has to fax a prescription to a pharmacist. That I, I just find absurd. So there's lots more that can be done. Uh, we should have much better access to our health data. Uh, and I think they will begin to make some changes with this. But, you know, many... Uh, many advocates are saying what this country really needs is a guaranteed right to access to a primary care practitioner, whether it's a nurse practitioner, a doctor, um, and and a growing percentage of Canadians do not have a family doctor or anyone for their primary care. So I, I think that kind of of big but necessary change is certainly a long way off given what has been on offer in this uh, in this latest round of, of negotiations and we don't know finally what what the provinces are going to bite on in terms of provincial agreements but we know the f- the funding envelope and that is certainly not going to be enough well and and as you say the devil's going to be in the details here but it certainly seems just based on what the premiers are saying uh that that, as you mentioned, for-profits are, are going to be part of this deal, most likely, uh, especially since, uh, you know, after Doug Ford made his announcement a couple of weeks ago, I guess now, uh, the prime minister just, uh, he he classified it as innovative. Uh, and I think some people, including Jagmeet Singh, uh, were, were looking for the prime minister to condemn that idea, well, as Mr. Singh did. Uh, is that ship sailed already? Are we just uh, giving up and resigning ourselves to the fact that, that private and public are going to have to get along here? 
Well, you know, uh, some of my conservative colleagues will argue that there has always been a private element to our healthcare system, that our doctors, in fact, are, are like uh, independent business people, um, and that there are things like um, uh, long-term care services and, and other services that, uh, or, or even um, laboratory services that are available through uh, private clinics. That is all true. However, uh, with the expansion of private for-profit clinics, which is the vision in Ontario and, and has been increasing in Alberta, for example, uh, I think you're going to see uh, real pressure, greater pressure uh, to erode our public system. I don't think anything like this happens overnight. I don't think we're at uh, a tipping point on this, but I think it, there will be an erosion. I think increasingly what our, what our major problem is, is lack of staffing in the public system, nurses uh, voting with their feet to get out of a system that doesn't respect them or pay them enough or give them work-life balance. And if they decide to to move in greater numbers to private clinics where they've got guaranteed hours and maybe a bit better pay, we're going to see even fewer staff in our public system. And we already have underutilized capacity operating rooms that are silent because of lack of funding and staff. So I think that problem could arose, could arise. But I don't hear the prime minister, you know, he's he's dancing around it. He says, oh, yes, I, I made this a condition, but he's clearly not going to the wall on this and has not. Um, I think it's just a, a stand he's not prepared to take. Well, and that was one of the things that I always found rather puzzling. You know, even the premier himself, uh, Mr. Ford, said, you know, it, it's a shame that, you know, all these ORs and, and ERs, well, the ERs are overcrowded, but the ORs are, as you say, dark an awful lot of the time on weekends and evenings. We got to do something about that. Well, he's not staffing anything. He's not giving them any. He said, we're going to shift it all to the private sector. Uh, and, and that's great for the private sector, I suppose. But at the same time, uh, and hospitals are understaffed and, and we're not using the equipment that's in there. Uh, You've got to wonder just what the intentions of the government are, the long-term intentions of the government are, and, and I don't think we have a clear answer to that. Well, Bill, you know, the healthcare system is uh, a huge target for the private sector. If you look at the, the U.S. Or, or other countries, frankly, uh, there are millions, probably billions to be made off the healthcare sector. So is it something that uh, private companies have their eye on as a money-making venture? Of course, why wouldn't they? And if they can chip away at the outside, maybe the long-term prize is, is something much bigger. I think there has always been pressure to privatize parts of our healthcare system. I think it's against the best interests of Canadians. I, I don't support it. I think we should take a firm stand on it. Um, but I totally understand why those who are in it to make money see this as an opportunity. 
Well, and we threw the numbers around like a week or two ago. Cataracts seem to be the number one issue when we start talking about private, because that's where I guess an awful lot of that work goes now. Uh, and the government will compensate a private clinic 150 bucks per procedure, but only 100 bucks to the hospital for doing the exact same thing. Uh, which I, you know, it, at first place you said, why, why the inequity? Well, that's the profit margin, I guess, uh, because it's a private clinic, and it, that's got to be addressed really somewhere down the road. And I don't know that there's any premier that actually wants to do that. So you have to expect that that leadership is going to come from the feds, don't you? Well, it is up to the uh, up to the federal government to enforce the Canada Health Act, and I'm I'm trying to think what federal minister it was. Was it Monique Bejean decades ago who refused to transfer money to a province because they were allowing private for profit service? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's probably what's needed. The alternative is something like British Columbia, where they have been trying to uh, bring some private services into the public sector, uh, purchasing um, private clinics. Uh, but that can be very costly. But, you know, you make a good point, Bill. It's, you know, it, businesses are in it to make money. And that profit has to come from somewhere. And somebody's got to pay for it. So... Is it going to cost more? You bet it's going to cost more. One way or another, uh, businesses are not in business to lose money, whereas in public system, the monies go to running the system, to providing services. It It is more efficient by its very nature, and I, I think that's the best use of our public dollars. Well, and I get concerned. I know we're just about out of time here, but you know, if that trend is going to continue and, and it is going to cost more. I know the argument's going to be, well, yeah, but OHIP's paying for it. Well, that's us. <laughs> oh, it's, that's tax dollar money that's doing that. And if all of a sudden the next story six, eight months from now is that OHIP is overburdened, that's when they start looking at delisting services and say, okay, we're not going to cover this anymore. We're not going to cover this. So this this could be a vicious cycle, uh, which means we're going to have to carry on this conversation uh, in the days <laughs> and weeks ahead because <laughs> we're out of time. Peggy, thanks as always. Great talking with you again. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. You too, Bill. Thanks. Peggy Nash, former NDP finance critic and author of the book, Women Winning Office, An Activist Guide to Getting Elected. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talk, of course, of Chinese spy balloons and and Chinese infiltration into universities and uh, some security issues that are going on. Uh, There is a hue and cry right now right across this country uh, to do something about foreign agents in this country. Well, unmasking foreign agents must be done in what is called a culturally sensitive way. That's according to Public Service Minister uh, Mendicino, who talked about this just the other day. I'm not quite sure what that phrase means. Uh, and I'm not quite sure just how we go about doing this. Uh, to get some insight into this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Phil Gursky. Phil is the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. He's a distinguished fellow at the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and, of course, a former CSIS analyst. Phil, thank you so much for the time. I hope you're doing well these days. I am well. How are you today, sir? Good. I want to talk to you about uh, Mr. Mendicino's, Minister Mendicino's comments in a second, but uh, we haven't talked for a few days. I, first of all, your insights into the uh, the, the balloons because uh, apparently there's a bunch of them now floating all over the globe. Uh, this kind of came to our attention about a week or so ago. Uh, and the one that got shot down uh, apparently flew over Canadian soil too. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't know about it. I don't know if you knew about it. I, I just, you know, what was the Canadian response and, and, and what should we think about this? Well, yeah, there's a really great questions, Bill. I, 
a lot more, as you said, is coming out now, not just about this balloon, but the Pentagon is now reporting that, you know, the Chinese have many balloons. And they've overflown our airspace in the past as well. We're very fortunate in this country in that we have such a good ally south of the border. Uh, you're probably familiar with NORAD, North American yep. Air Defense, which has been around since the Cold War days. So we treat the airspace over the continent as sort of a shared airspace, which means it's a shared responsibility. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist, no pun intended, you know that the Americans have uh, much more capability in this regard, Bill, in terms of policing it, monitoring what's happening, and in the you know worst case scenario, uh, shooting down any any craft, balloon or otherwise, which is you know caught over our airspace illegally and is not in our interest. So I, I think your listeners are basically uh, you know a tip of the hat to the Americans uh, for uh, monitoring this stuff and eventually shooting this balloon down off the coast of the Carolinas. And again, again, it's one more indication that that our alliance with the United States in security and defense matters is as strong as it's ever been. I know that we got the same result up here. As some of the critics down in the States did. Why did you just shoot it down as soon as you saw it? Uh, which I think is a kind of a rash movement. You know, I, I didn't expect them to, to scramble the Air Force and say, okay, yeah. go and knock this thing down, especially as we found out more about it. And and the payload on this thing, the, the, yeah. they, they said it was about the size of three touring buses. Uh, yeah. it, this was not just a balloon. This was a, a spy thing with all sorts of equipment on it. If they'd shot this down over land, one can only imagine what the devastation might have been like. Well, well, exactly. And, you know, the U.S. president uh, was criticized by the Republicans. Surprise, surprise. Uh, nothing he does is, is right as far as they're concerned. But you're absolutely right, Bill. This this could have caused. Now, I, I stress could because, you know, just like uh, most parts of Canada, as you're well aware, are not populated very uh, heavily. So, you know, if it come down, I may have killed a deer or a moose, I suppose. But, you know, you, you, you don't know what happens when you shoot these things out of the air. The the Fragments could travel all kinds of areas. And if it's anywhere near a populated part of the country, you could have had injuries or deaths on the ground. And as a consequence, the Americans were smart to let it, you know, fly over our space, get out to the Atlantic and then take it out, take it out with the with the missiles. I think this was a good move. And it also allowed the Americans and our, by extension ourselves to monitor this balloon's progress to see where it was headed and to gather more intelligence on Chinese intelligence capabilities. All in all, I think the strategy that was adopted was the right one. Uh, and and the, uh, the other question I wanted to get your read on, though, uh, you know, they said, well, my goodness, heavens, this thing went right across the continent uh, and it took all sorts of pictures. It's spying on us. Uh, they're spying on us every day, aren't they, Phil? I mean, they've got Bill. satellites up there that can read the newspaper over my shoulder if they wanted to. They all are, Bill. Uh, you know, as I've been joking in the past week or so, is intelligence the world's oldest profession or second oldest? I always get those two mixed <laughs> up. But, you know, this has been going on since the time of Hammurabi in Iraq 10,000 years ago. We None of us should be surprised at that. I think maybe the surprise would be for people that maybe didn't realize the extent of Chinese intelligence capabilities. And yet, you know, China is a major world power. They've got a huge military. They've got an even probably huger intelligence apparatus. The fact that they're doing this uh, should be a no-brainer and that uh, China is not our friend. I know, I know, I know we're going to get into that in a second, uh, but the fact that they were gathering intelligence on the Americans and to a certain extent ourselves uh, should have been the worst, keep, worst kept secret in the world in, in a world where lots of secrets are supposedly kept. 
Well, and, you know, just to, to put this in the broader context, uh, yeah, they're spying on us, but we're spying on them, too. Uh, you know, this is like the old Mad Magazine, Spy versus Spy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, as you say, the second oldest profession or whatever, and it happens all the time. And every now and then it gets thrown on our face and we get outraged. Well, let's exactly. let's pivot from that to uh, to uh, foreign agents in this country. And, boy, Phil, we could spend an hour just listing <laughs> uh, some of the things that have been talked about here. You know, uh, Chinese military scientists working at Canadian universities, uh, essentially on developing new weaponry or new technologies for weaponry. That's a little frightening. Uh, they've, they've invested a lot of R&D money into universities. Uh, we saw the story a couple of weeks ago with the Chinese, what I, I think they call them liaison offices. They're essentially police stations, aren't they, for yeah. uh, the Chinese to monitor the Chinese Canadians in situations like this. So we know it exists. Uh, what do you do about it? Some, we're not going to just you know go around them all up in trucks and say, okay, you guys are out of here. That's, that's hardly the way to do it. What, what's, what's the procedure here? Well, first and foremost, Bill, I don't know whether to laugh or cry when I hear the government's response to this stuff. And you, you open the program with this, you know, we're going to handle this in a culturally sensitive way or whatever the heck the terminology being used by the Trudeau government. This is something now, you know that I didn't work China at CSIS. I was the terrorism guy, yeah. but I had, I had counterparts that worked on China. Uh, and, and Chinese activities in Canada are covered under two parts of the CSIS Act, uh, Section 2A, which is foreign espionage, and Section 2B, which is foreign interference. They're, they're kind of related, but they're separate parts of the CSIS Act. We have known about this for decades, Bill, and uh, CSIS has been briefing up governments because CSIS has an advisory role. CSIS doesn't have any powers of in enforcement. The government has been informed of this for decades and has turned a blind eye or turn a blind, a blind ear. Can you turn a blind ear? I'm not sure. Um, to the advice that's been given, they've ignored it. Uh, they didn't want to affect uh, economic relations with China. I think even Trudeau said, we don't want to offend our Chinese friends. Uh, well, they're not our friends. They're an enemy. So let's start with that. Uh, there's lots you can do about it. If they're diplomats, you can expel them. You can declare them. You can PNG them, declare them persona non grata because they're engaged in activities that are not diplomatic in nature and are against the interests of Canada. If they're Canadians cooperating with the Chinese, well, they can be charged with espionage. They can be perhaps be charged with treason. I'm not sure the last time someone in Canada was charged with treason, Bill, and maybe back to the, uh, I don't know, the revolts of 1837. We have to go back that far. Uh, but there are definitely laws on the books and there's things that can be done to stop China and its agents from doing that on our soil. And we know what's happening on our soil. I, I guess the, the the first question we maybe should have asked, Phil, is uh, are they aware, our authorities here, CSIS for being one, RCMP, I suppose, as well in there, are they aware of the of the magnitude of what's going on here? In other words, you know, are they understanding who's doing what? And, and are, you know, can they name names and say, oh, yeah, these are the people that we need to watch? Wow, that's a, a really good question for a Friday morning. It's hard to say to what extent we are, are aware of the magnitude of the effort, Bill. You know, CSIS has a lot on, on, on its plate. So does the RCMP. Uh, you've got finite resources. And as I always say, you've got sort of infinite threat scenarios to worry about. Uh, I do know it was a very robust uh, effort on the part of CSIS when I was there. Again, I wasn't involved in it, but I had many close colleagues for, who were similarly with the RCMP. I, I think they're doing the best job they can with the resources that they have to devote to it. But given that there are other priorities like terrorism, like you know, weapons of mass destruction, et cetera, et cetera, it's hard to put it this way, Bill. You never have enough resources to look at it. And as a consequence, there will be things that you're simply not aware of because you don't have those resources. But I think we have a pretty darn good picture of what China's been up to over the past 30 or 40 years. And as I said earlier, uh, the, our assessments have been shared with the government about what we knew uh, and maybe some advice on what to do about it. The fact that governments haven't acted, that's not CSIS's problem. 
that's a government problem. But, you know, in intelligence, um, you never know it all. You try to gather as much as you can and process it. And you hope you've got the worst, you know, scenarios mastered. Um, but um, as I also always say, you're only as good as your last failure. And if you miss something important and something bad happens, people start pointing fingers at you. But it all boils down to resources and money at the end of the day. I, I'm I, I'm not going to ask you to try to get inside the head of the the minister Mendicino here with his comments. Oh, please don't, uh, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that that requires a, a lot more analysis, probably of him and they, of you for wanting to do it. But anyway, uh, when he makes a, a comment like that, I mean, uh, is he concerned? You know about? I mean, in World War II, as soon as we declared war on Germany, they rounded up Germans just about every facet of life and said, "Okay, fine." You, you know, those were internment camps. They did the same thing to the to the Japanese over in the West Coast, uh, and it was disgusting. It was ugly. I know subsequent governments have apologized for it. Nobody's asking for that. But if as, if there are bad apples. You know, can the government or CSIS or somebody say that individual there is gathering information and giving it to a foreign power? Just get them out of the country. I mean, maybe don't charge them. Maybe you don't want to get into that ugly mess of of, of a legal battle. But you can you can dismiss them, send them home, can't you? You can if they're not Canadian nationals. And, and you're yeah. absolutely right that th this really shouldn't be that complicated. And I agree with you, Bill. Historically, there have been incidents and policies that in hindsight we would look upon as probably racist in, in origin um even my ukrainian grandfather who came over during the first world war i think may have been sent to a camp in quebec because he, his passport said he was with the austro-hungarian empire with whom we were at war back in 1914. so yeah there have been some ugly incidents in the past but no th th this is not that complicated as you said CSIS can identify individuals through their investigations and pass the information on to the RCMP or to the government and, and to take action. I, I don't know, Bill, that this is part and parcel of a trend I've been noticing over the past eight years since I retired from the security service. There seems to be a reluctance to call things what they are. You and I have talked a lot about terrorism, for example, on your, your show. Uh, the government that seems to be unable to pronounce the term Islamist terrorism, despite the fact it's the single greatest form of terrorism around the world nowadays. If you talk about Islamist terrorism, you're called an Islamophobe. So I, I guess you're not being culturally sensitive when you use that type of terminology. I don't know where it gets us, Bill. It, it doesn't help CSIS uh, to be told that they, you know, got to be culturally sensitive. They, they are. I mean, you know, you, you don't do your investigations to piss people off. You do your investigations to gather intelligence and advise the government. And, and the men and women at CSIS know know their jobs. They know what they're doing. So, you know, to, to, for the minister to say this is just, it's ludicrous. And, and it makes us look silly, to be perfectly honest. And I and one more thing, Bill, uh, sorry. Um, I've been hearing from call, ex-colleagues and colleagues still in the business that a lot of what's coming out of this government in terms of national security intelligence uh, is being laughed at by our allies. That, you know, Canada's gone so, so far off the, uh, I don't know, off the ball field that it's we're wondering whether they're a reliable partner anymore. Well, and yeah, we've talked about that in the past, uh, you know, the five eyes and the attitude that they have. And it seems that every time they get together, uh, there's, you know, some sense of chastisement from Australia and the UK towards Canada and to yeah. a lesser extent, New Zealand. Like if you guys aren't going to pull your weight, you can't stay in the club. Yeah. Uh, or you can just sit there in the back row and watch us do what we're supposed to be doing. And and the same seems to be happening now in, uh, in the, the South Pacific now, uh, you know, around the China Sea area where that's a threat. We know that's a threat. Uh, and our government's kicking around. I mean, the ministers are making all the trips overseas there and talking to heads of government, uh, but they don't seem to understand the magnitude of the threat to North America. I mean, you know, the UK has a bigger commitment and a bigger uh, uh, 
uh, entity down in South China than we do. And, and we're a Pacific co- a, a nation. And mm-hmm. you, you have to wonder, do these guys get it? I know. They, I, I wonder sometimes if the if folks up in Ottawa, it's like those two security guards in the museum. They are they're watching TV while they're robbing the museum <laughs> behind them. Uh, you know, we're not paying attention here. Or if we are, uh, uh, please, please tell me we're not naive enough to think, yeah, we see it, but it's not really going to hurt us. I, I think you know Canada traditionally has punched above its weight when it comes to things like the military. And I'm not talking historically here, Bill. You know, at the end of the Second World War, we had, what, the third or fourth largest Navy in the world? Yeah. I'm pretty sure we can't make that boast anymore. But, you know, we've done more with less, I think, for a long time. And my fear is on two fronts, Bill. Um, first is that we're no longer punching above our weight. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, and secondly, and this is something that I've been doing a lot of thought about, I don't have any direct evidence for, But it seems to me we're getting much more political interference with what our intelligence agencies are doing. Now, the way it works is that, you know, you get your requirements for the government. They tell you what they want to know about, and you go ahead and do your job based on the way that you're trained. What you don't want from the government is don't do this or do it this way. That's not their remit. That's that's why you have trained people with the intelligence services. And I've just got a sneaking suspicion, a spidey sense of sort. I, I, again, I don't have any concrete evidence to support my my thoughts that we're, that um, this government uh, over the past couple of years has been engaged in a lot more poking its fingers where it doesn't belong in the security service. And again, this is also something that um, would uh, dictate our responses to things. And you're right. We are a Pacific nation. We should care about what happens in the South China Sea because a lot of our trading partners are down there. And if China succeeds in you know imposing their so-called nine dash line whereby the entire part of that ocean is is chinese internal waters it's going to affect us economically and politically so we can't ignore it and i just hope this government would realize that and and fall fall in lockstep with our allies in this regard well we'll see if and if there's going to be any response at all with the, especially under the direction of minister mendicino here uh, because I, I and i'm not suggesting you know it was an incorrect phrase maybe a politically sensitive phrase but if somebody's being investigated or you know if they have to go to the extent of maybe charging people with breaches of security uh, it's because they're doing it not you know their, their ethnicity has nothing to do with it uh, if you're breaching security you should be targeted by our officials and and you know the force of the law should be exacted upon them and they're just hesitant to do that. And I guess that's part of the frustration. Uh, we're way past time as usual on this, but I, I get so involved <laughs> when we have these conversations, Phil. Always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this. I'm sure we'll talk again soon, Bill. You have a nice weekend. You betcha. Phil Gersky uh, from uh, Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, and he was a former CSIS analyst. And, and as he said, he wasn't involved in, in the China uh, files and with CSIS an awful lot of the time, uh, but uh, well aware of that. I mean, they do talk at lunch there in the cafeteria at CSIS and, and other places. And it's it, we've got to be aware of these things. That's that's all there is to it. And I, I get that. I, you know, Minister Mendicino's comments, if I can extrapolate from his words there, okay, we, we don't want to start targeting any particular ethnic group. I don't think anybody's saying that. I don't think anybody wants to see that. But we can't back off and, and, and let them run roughshod and do whatever they want and, and infiltrate and share our secrets and in some cases share that with their government and not do anything about it. And that's why as Phil said, a number of our partners in the Five Eyes are just getting awfully frustrated with Canada and saying, look, it's going on under your nose. What are you going to do about it? That's a good question. We should get an answer to that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Earlier this week, the Integrity Commissioner here in Ontario uh, has ruled that uh, Premier Doug Ford did not uh, go over the line when it came to uh, some of the things that have happened with he and his, well, his daughter's wedding stag and doe, for one thing. 
Uh, was there a conflict of interest? Uh, was money changed hands? This is all to do with the Greenbelt situation and who attended this. Uh, the fact that the Integrity Commissioner has pretty much given them a pass on this has shocked a number of people uh, based on some of the information we've received. Joining us to talk about this is Duff Conacher. Duff, of course, is the co-founder of Democracy Watch. Uh, Duff, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time today. My pleasure. A lot of the stuff that, that I know was going to be discussed, I guess, be, with the Integrity Commissioner is, is actually public knowledge now. The, the Star and others have done some pretty good investigative reporting on this and the Narwhal as well, about who knew what, who met with whom, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, were you surprised by the Integrity Commissioner's uh, judgment here? Yes, and we don't know the whole situation um, yet because it wasn't an investigation. It was just a... Uh, a check by the commissioner checking in with Ford. And so we need a full inquiry. Democracy uh, uh, Watch will be filing a complaint about this. Unfortunately uh, and incredibly, the integrity commissioner is not required to investigate when a member of the public files a complaint about a provincial politician, even though they all supposedly work for us. But an MPP has to file that complaint to force a full inquiry. It sounds like the, the integrity commissioner asked Ford Oh, did you know anything about this? He said no, and the integrity commissioner just trusted that answer, which is just, frankly, negligent. Well, and there are a number of requests, though, as we reported on this program. Uh, Green Party leader uh, Mike Schreiner actually requested the integrity commissioner. He was turned down. He said, I'm not even going to look into it. Uh, well, he said there wasn't enough evidence. How would he know that if he didn't do any investigation? I don't get that. Well, you have to provide reasonable grounds, and Mike Schreiner filed a complaint without providing any evidence. And, you know, I, I agree. The integrity commissioner looks, I, I, I think there's lots of evidence. We have the integrity commissioner in court right now challenging a bunch of really bad rulings that let lobbyists off the hook for clear violations of the lobby, provincial lobbying law. Uh, the integrity commissioner pretty much looks for every way he can find to not do his job well and to not enforce the rules strictly and strongly, which the Supreme Court of Canada has ruled they, they need to be enforced strictly or strongly, or we don't have a democracy. Um, but um, those complaints have been refiled by NDP and Liberal members. And uh, so he is investigating now because they filed lots of evidence. And uh, with this situation, though, it's a separate situation. It's about a party where, uh, according to reports, Essentially, people who lobby the provincial government and the Ford cabinet for favors were asked to come to uh, the Stag and Doe for his daughter and son-in-law, uh, upcoming wedding, and to uh, pay and donate to um, help them out. And according to the Global News media report, some of them thought this was really smelly and didn't go, and others did figuring that's the only way you're going to get anything in return from the Ford government. And the integrity commissioners ruled, oh, well, Doug Ford says he doesn't know about the gifts and that no government business was discussed at the party and that there are personal friends of his, some of the people who were reportedly invited, including property developers who may or may not have an interest in this uh, decision to open up the Greenbelt to development. And none of those things are relevant. It doesn't matter whether government business was discussed. It doesn't matter whether they're personal friends of the Ford family. It doesn't matter even whether Ford knew about the gifts. They were gifts to a family member of his. And helping that family member out, which would mean Ford does not have to help his daughter out as much financially because they get all this money from people lobbying the Ford government. 
And you're not allowed to accept a gift that directly or indirectly is, has any connection to your official duties, which, of course, gifts from people trying to get favors from the Ford cabinet have that connection, at least indirectly. And, again, just more negligence from this integrity commissioner, a, a long, long line of negligent rulings, letting people off the hook, lobbyists and politicians, including Ford and his staff when they tried to appoint his friend as OPP commissioner, and letting them off the hook for what are clear violations of the ethics rules and the lobbying rules uh, in Ontario. And it's sad that we have an integrity commissioner who lacks integrity. Or, well, some would suggest backbone. I know that's a pretty strong accusation, but they always seem to err on the side of of, of letting people off the hook. Uh, and if, and, and Now, I, I can't speak for everybody in the legislature, but I know that most people I've talked to in, in public life, at whatever level of government it is, Duff, they know the rules. And if they don't know the rules, they're always told, err on the side of caution. Don't take the gift. Uh, and there are people that abuse it because they know that the integrity commissioner or whomever is going to re- do the investigation in this is not going to dig as deep as they probably should in situations, and they just kind of let everything go. So it's it's one of the reasons why it's so rare here is because they really don't put the muscle into it that they need to to do an investigation. Uh, as you say, how could how could he come up with an? It was only a couple of weeks ago that they filed this complaint. Now, and all of a sudden, he's got all the answers he needs. Well, with this situation. Um, there's two different situations. One is the green belt. And so he has not excused Ford on, on the no. green belt decision. That's still under investigation. MPPs have filed that complaint. Democracy Watch and uh, the environmental group Environmental Defense have filed a complaint with the, uh, with the uh, OPP asking for a police investigation of that situation because it seems like someone in the government leaked information in advance of the Greenbelt decision because you see some decisions uh, by property developers to buy Greenbelt protected properties that don't really make sense unless they somehow knew that uh, those properties uh, were going to be opened up to development. The second situation with the party is just that some of the developers, the rumor is, uh, unconfirmed, that some of those same developers were invited to this party and invited to donate money to Ford's daughter and her, his son-in-law to be at this stag and doe party. And that's a separate rule. Uh, the rule about not sharing confidential information to the government in a way that would advance someone's private interest is one rule, and that's the rule that's been investigated by the Integrity Commissioner, Auditor General, uh, OPPs examining it. Uh, in terms of what in, whether anyone violated that rule with regard to uh, disclosing the decision to open up the green belt to development in advance. And uh, this is a separate rule on gifts. And Ford did not check before the party, uh, from all reports, uh, whether it was okay to have invite people who seek favors from his uh, cabinet and himself to a party and ask them to donate to his daughter. It was checked after the fact, after Global News reporters learned about it and and uh, asked Ford about it, and Ford then went to the Integrity Commissioner. Integrity Commissioner has not investigated that situation fully, but has excused it, again, just based on, from from what we can tell, from the, let, the uh, statement that's been issued to Global News, that uh, Ford said he didn't know about the gifts and no government business was discussed at the party. But those are, again, irrelevant factors. You cannot accept any gift under any conditions if it's even indirectly connected to your duties. And so a gift to his daughter 
of money uh, from people who are lobbying the Ford government is clearly illegal for uh, to be accepted by Ford or anyone in his family. It's, it would be indirectly a gift to him because now he doesn't have to give financial support to that financial support to his daughter. Exactly. And because they're people who are try- seeking favors from the government, of course, it's connected to his official duties, in, at least indirectly. Uh, Duff, we're going to have to leave it there. We're tight on time uh, this morning, but uh, certainly we're going to continue to follow this story and, and your involvement at, at, with uh, Democracy Watch. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you. Take care. To Duff Conagher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Uh, so the Integrity Commissioner investigations continue, and uh, there are those, as Duff mentioned, that are still hoping that there'll be a, a, a police investigation and in some of these accusations, too. Clear the air. Let's do that. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.